Hello. That was the week that was. It's over. Let it go. So sang Millicent Martin on the BBC's groundbreaking satire show TW3 of legendary memory. The next line went, Oof, what a week that was. Doubtless Tim Davy, the corporation's director general, would agree. Actually, his working week lasted 12 days, from the Thursday when he first heard of the Sun's allegations about a then-unnamed BBC presenter, to Tuesday this week, when he and his chair appeared in front of the House of Lords Communications Committee. As we learnt, the intervening weekends were cancelled, as the BBC's top team tried to chart a calm course through the mayhem outside and the efforts of the BBC's own news teams inside to develop the story. Each day brought another awful headline. I've been critical of the failure of the BBC and the rest of the media to challenge the Sun to produce its evidence, and of what I think was the excessive coverage BBC News gave to the issue, though that was far better than not covering it at all. Things now seem to be calming down. A review of how the BBC handled complaints made against Hugh Edwards will report in the autumn. So is the BBC seriously damaged by this latest scandal? On the whole, I think not. Real BBC scandals involve cover-ups, the organisation putting its interests before that of individuals involved, or behaving in an immoral, unethical or illegal manner. I don't believe this is such a case. I see two family tragedies, serious mental health issues, and certain newspapers and MPs delighted to have the opportunity to put the boot into the beeb and uninterested in discovering what really happened. I wait for the Conservative Party to disown the remarks of one of its vice-chairmen, Lee Anderson MP, who claims that the BBC is a safe haven for perverts, even though his party inhabits a rather large glass house in the area of sexual scandals. Media attention has now switched from Hugh Edwards to Dan Wooten, formerly of The Sun and now of GB News and The Daily Mail, who is facing allegations that he inappropriately offered colleagues large sums in return for sexual material allegations which he has seemed to deny. Oh, hubris. Well, to reflect on the BBC coverage of the last few days, I was delighted on Tuesday to be joined by Samira Ahmed, who is the presenter of Radio 4's arts programme Front Row and for 11 years has presented Newswatch, the sister programme and television news equivalent of Feedback, which also aims to hold the BBC to account on behalf of the licence fee payer. Samira Ahmed, thank you very much for joining us. How difficult has it been to report on Newswatch what we might call the Hugh Edwards affair? Well, it hasn't been in the sense that, you know, we're led by viewer comments and viewers are definitely talking about it. It's hard, but it's not just on this story, um, to get what we should do, which is um, a BBC editorial slash management response to viewer questions. And that's been the challenge. Has that been a challenge for quite a while? Because I noticed you in one of your previous uh, programmes uh, outlined a number of BBC managers who had declined the delightful experience of being interviewed by you. I mean, I nearly drove me mad yeah. on feedback, you know, getting statements. I know, where... I was going to ask you, how is it with you? Well, you know, the problem I, I find on feedback doing it is the BBC would say, it's not the right time. And I would say, it's not for you to decide what the right time is to put somebody up. It's the audience's view. Yeah. You know, they pay for you, they own you, you just put someone up. Now, of course, you understand in some circumstances. But, you know, the numbers of refusals and the number of bland yeah. statements, I mean, I got fed up, did you? Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, we keep asking. I mean, that's my job. And if management chooses not to come on, it's for the public 
to form a view on what that reveals. You know, what can I say? What can you say? You know, we ask. But it's unique, isn't it, the, uh, the situation we're in? Because most people won't understand the distinction between BBC management, if you like, and BBC News, of course, and BBC News has management at the top that sit on the boards or whatever. But I think on the whole, the BBC has, is, is pretty good, or BBC News is pretty good at um, being independent. But some, what I don't think it's necessarily pretty good about sometimes is becoming a little too self-obsessed. I looked at and listened to the coverage of the Hugh Edwards affair, and on the initially I was really pleased by the way in which BBC News dealt with it. And then I began to feel, this is getting a bit self-obsessed. 13 minutes on the uh, 10 o'clock news, when there are so many other stories around the world, there is a sense in which that moves from being self-examination to self-absorption, isn't there? Yeah, well, there's a couple of different ways of looking at that. One is I can see that the BBC could be accused if it didn't give it what was deemed to be enough attention, that they were trying to bury it. So I think they erred on the on one side of that, which was definitely not to minimise the coverage. Now, you could argue what is exactly the right amount, but I would say... And I remember my very first news watch was interviewing David Jordan, the head of editorial standards, who's still in that role, about Jimmy Savile and why the BBC had shut down a major investigation into him. I'm not making a direct comparison, but I think there is something connected about the fact that 11 years ago, the BBC had had questions raised about inappropriate behaviour. As I say, it's a completely different degree. But one of the things that came out of that, and I looked back at the um, Respect at Work guidelines that the BBC published in 2013 as a direct result of the Jimmy Savile case. And there was this whole thing about trying to create new ways for whistleblowing and reporting things. And um, so against the background of that, I can see why the instincts of BBC journalists, and I'm distinguishing BBC journalists separately from management of BBC News, BBC journalist instincts are always the right ones, which is you investigate and you report and, you know, you do what you feel is the right thing. And management and their anxieties about managing the crisis is not your problem. Well, I think it's entirely admirable. And uh, but, it, uh, but I was struck by when Newsnight, for example, uh, when Newsnight reported on this, obviously, you know, in their collective memory is what happened in the McAlpine case, where they falsely accused... Uh, well, actually, didn't actually mention the name, I think, but made it so clear that it was obvious, somebody who was entirely innocent. And, of course, it led to a whole range of problems. And I thought this time, when Newsnight were putting on allegations that they've alleged from the BBC newsroom without putting them to Hugh or uh, Edwards... But they tried to. Yeah, but they didn't have any answer, and they didn't allow BBC management to investigate. And you are left as an audience with, there are some sort of allegations, we don't know what they are, we don't know what the response is to it, whatever, but it adds fuel to the fire. And I wondered whether you felt that was entirely fair to do that. Yeah, I do think it was entirely fair. I think it's very interesting, I'm not accusing you, I think it's very interesting how many men are coming out and saying they feel uncomfortable about this. But actually, they did everything right. They sourced uh, the nature of the accusations, they talked about younger members of staff, um, and they approached Hugh Edwards, which is more than BBC management did when they waited seven weeks to raise questions but how couldn't could they have said to BBC management, OK, look, we have to have an answer in three or four days, whatever, but these are the allegations. What do you think? Why would they not put it to the person? 
Well, you would. If I was doing that, I'd put it to the person. I would then put yeah, it to the management. so they did that. Yeah, I'd then put it to the management. And I would say... So well, it's not management's, it's not management's it responsibility. Well, OK, OK. I, but I, what I would have done is say, you've got three or four days and then we're going to publish. But I would have given them the opportunity. As it was, the listener thinks, hold on, there's some sort of allegations. We don't know what there is. Oh, smoke without fire, etc. Well, they did know what it was. It was about sending inappropriate messages. Ah, yeah, but what's inappropriate is, you know, here we are. I mean, you've accused me of being a man, which I plead guilty to, right? OK, but there is an issue here. <laughs> I know lots of lovely men. <laughs> Thank you. Very, You're a lovely Thank man. Thank you very much. But there is an issue here, which is, it may not apply in this case, where older men use language unintentionally, which is offensive to younger people. Well, now, you know, no, look, we, uh, Roger, sorry, I hate to say it, but you had a bit like when John Humphrey said, it's it's like people would be able to ask people out at work. Honestly, if someone says there's something inappropriate, then you look into it further. Let me finish what I was going to say for once. Right, OK, no, I, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Actually, I apologise, <laughs> you're a guest. I shouldn't behave like this. But what I was going to say is... For an older person to use inappropriate language maybe once, um, he shouldn't do it twice. And the question is, what is intent? What is matters here? What? What matters <laughs> here is intent. There's got to be a difference. Look, for example, I go to North England, I call people, people call me love. I go down Devon, people call, my, call me, hello, my lovely. If I did that in the BBC newsroom or did it to you, you'd shoot me. And properly so. Oh, uh, hang on a minute. I, Are you going to call no. me my lovely? No, you're not. What I no, mean is, no, you've no, got I'm not, to allow. I'm, no, 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 wait, well, you've got to allow. Yeah, no, OK, I'm going I'm to deal with all this. So, Roger, I, 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 first of all, it's not for you or any individual man to decide what is worth investigating if it's deemed to be inappropriate behaviour. And as we know, with all kinds of issues like racism, it's racism is in the experience. And we know that there are issues around power. We know there's a massive age gap issue. So I I just don't see how you can say, well, you shouldn't be reporting this until you can verify that this, that and the other past a certain threshold, which you're setting of randomly, for example, in this conversation. It doesn't work I'm that way. I'm not saying randomly. And there's if, always a threshold. No, you as a journalist... You your you, no, you as a journalist have a set of thresholds to which you operate. Yeah. The question is not when people have a right to know. It, the question is not whether people have a right to know. They do. The question is, when is it that they should have... Uh, they should know? And before they know, have you done sufficient investigation to make sure that the what is there is sufficiently grounded and that you've checked and given in case of the management involved an opportunity at least to respond that's the question i'm not defending the behavior at all okay so there's a couple of things i don't think management are remotely relevant when you're talking about individual allegations of inappropriate behaviour, I think approaching the individual is right. And if you look at the, the coverage of the Tim Westwood case, where I didn't see BBC management worrying about that. There were a huge spate of mostly black young women who'd had uh, terrible experiences, had reported them in many cases, and it appeared as if it had been ignored. And that was a wonderful investigation by a terrific BBC reporter, Chi Chi, who I know well. So I, I think they, that obviously every case is unique, but the principle of investigation is the same. And it's about power. It's about um, the, the, per the alleged victim feeling that this was inappropriate. Um, we know there was an issue where people hadn't reported to management, which is in itself an issue. And I can see why, quite rightly, you might say, well, hang on, no one reported to management. Now it's suddenly coming out. Does it feel like it's open season for anyone to raise anything? I think Newsnight would have been very, very careful before they aired this stuff. But um, I'm sorry, it was a news story. It was in the public interest. And if you look at the way the public are reacting on this, you know, yes, there's huge sympathy um, for an individual who's going through a mental health crisis, but there is also, rightly, huge concern about the allegations of abuse of power.
by a much older man. I agree with all of that. And it's not a question of what's reported, it's when it's reported. And what I was trying to raise was the issue of fairness and also the responsibility of reporting initially to a management uh, concerns that you have. And I was trying to throw that into the, the argument. I'm sure the management would have, would have, I mean, they would have known before it aired. You know, I mean, I, do, I haven't spoken to Newsnight. I mean, I'd love to. I'd love to talk to Newsnight about how they approach the story. But I'm sure they would have approached the press office to say, yeah, we're running the story tonight. You know, is there a BBC response, for example? But don't you feel OK? I'm, 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 I'm finding myself in a unique position of defending the BBC here, which is not a rare experience for me, I must say. But if you suddenly get 7 o'clock in the evening, a statement like that, ah, where's the DJ? What do we do? How do how, how, well, how, that's well, what well, they're all how do we find out who said for, what? Whatever. Roger. We still don't know. I mean, it'll be interesting to find out. We still don't know the nature of the original allegations we you know the sun newspaper and i was astonished how little initially how initially people were not interested in actually checking the story with the sun uh, they raced yeah, they well, raced they raced on with the story you know they didn't ask about, about you know what the allegations that sun didn't put out blurred photographs they often do they didn't show uh, blurred you know so, yeah. um, bank transactions or anything like that well maybe the cliff richard ca- privacy case when he successfully sued the bbc and got aggravated damages for intrusion on his privacy has had an impact and don't forget it's a case-by-case basis you know it isn't a principle that you cannot report someone's name but it's obviously a risk that if you haven't can't justify it um then it could you know backfire in terms of libel so that's interesting i would say and i'm sure we agree on this that the son's motives um, for running the story um, were entirely despicable. And it was because I think the, that that whole newspaper group has a, an obsessive agenda with destroying the BBC. And I feel very much for those parents who, if it's true that their child is a, you know, a drug addict, there are legitimate concerns. But the son's motives for running it weren't, um, I think, unconnected to their long-term agenda to destroy the BBC. Mm. You see, the difference between you and me on this would be I agree with your analysis of the, the long-term strategy of the uh, the Sun and of Rupert Murdoch, whatever, which is clearly opposed to the BBC and clearly opposed to the licence fee. But I couldn't say, because you don't know and I don't know, whether in this particular case that's the motive. So you're saying it is a fact and I'm saying it's a reasonable hypothesis, but it's not a fact. OK, no, I'll, I'll agree with you on that. Um, and I, I, I tell you the other question, which no-one has asked, I'm amazed no-one's asked it, who has been paying... This lawyer um, that suddenly produced a statement on behalf of this young person to say there was no criminal wrongdoing. I have no information at all, but it's a good, it's no, a good question. No, but no one's asked. And no one's asked why, but, and I think it's a legitimate question to ask who's paid that bill, how, how it suddenly emerges person as a lawyer who's not been heard from since. You see, the reason I'm more, slightly more cautious than you in all of this is that because, you know, I think we're moving into the area of deep fake videos and AI. Yes. I think you look at uh, social media and you look at the extraordinary stories that are going around and there's a lot of people who are being defamed and a lot of people have been accused of things and, and it's very difficult once the bandwagon starts going to attempt sort of a calm, rational, hold on, what are we saying, what's the charge, is there evidence and so on. And the other thing, you know, the, the, the people have, I think found very difficult to to do is is that we seem to be not understanding how well weak so many of us are all of us have got issues and problems and the absence of basic sympathy for the young man in this case for the family in this case but also the presenter now there is 
But I think no, initially- there has been among a lot of us. Let's face it, Roger, it's mostly older white men coming out to speak on this. And a lot of it has been very defensive. You know, look at the newspapers today. There's a massive, actually, sorry, a BBC investigation by the wonderful Zoe Conway, um, the employment correspondent, long-term investigation into the scale of sexual harassment and bullying of young people, mainly women, but not just women, going on at McDonald's across the place, people reporting it. A young woman I heard on the news today saying she'd been told when she joined at the age of 16, oh, just be careful of that person who was known to go around groping women. That's happening now in 2023. That's the culture in which deep fakes, yes, in theory they're a risk, but the reality is, Roger, I'm afraid to say there are plenty of men who are going around abusing their power without any worry about deep fakes. We should be more worried about that. Well, I agree with you. I agree with all of that, but I do this a bit offensive, frankly. To you, you call me, I am an old white man, but to assume because I I don't say to you because you're a young woman with a certain background that because of that... I love that you called me young, Roger. Yeah, I know, okay. All right, a middle-aged woman... (laughs) of a certain background, (laughs) that you automatically, your views are automatically not independent because they're entirely determined by your background. You're implying that an older man can't think independently because he's an older white man. I didn't accuse anyone of that. I didn't accuse anyone of that. I just pointed out who had been coming out to speak on this. And you said that, oh, you know, people aren't aren't expressing a view about, um, weren't expressing sympathy for the young person. I've had plenty of people expressing sympathy from the young people from the start. Not just women, but mainly members of the public. forgive me what I was trying to say, and I doubtless expressed it poorly was that there was this little general sympathy in society for victims be they young or old or whatever that we seem to be far more judgmental and you know uh, people are also expected to be perfect in their lives all of us have got mistakes i'm not excusing anybody and it's not about older white men it's about everybody it's about a society that seems to be so willing and desperate to condemn immediately and I do think in those circumstances, a greater deal of sympathy for all concerned might, might go a little way. Yeah, yeah I, I don't know. I think there's plenty of... Um, con- uh, my bigger concern is how much abuse is going unreported. And this is completely separate to, uh, you know, an individual case at the BBC. I look at the scale of abuse that I, I find out about every day. I'm a trustee of a charity called the Centre for Women's Justice. You look at how those teenage girls in Rotherham and Rochdale were treated by the police. They were 13 years old and they were being accused of being prostitutes and whores, while adult men were being allowed to abuse them. I, you know, I've met some of these women. This is a continuum. It's not about everything is the same as that. We live in a society where victims are afraid to speak out. And on the rare occasion that a powerful person is named, yes, there are legitimate issues around um, being quick to judge, but there is a criminal process. And in the meantime, I'm more concerned about how victims are constantly failed and they're ignored in this. You know, one of the problems interviewing you is you're not very frank, are they? I mean, you're so... Rec- you know. <laughs> it's so lovely to have somebody who just says exactly what they think. Right, I'd love to go on more about that, but sure. just let go back a little bit about the problem about the BBC repeating itself, uh, uh, reporting itself on Newswatch. And I think another thing we may share here is a frustration about scheduling of the number of programmes. I mean, I when I was doing feedback, the number of feedbacks were reduced to about 30, and we were scheduled at rather strange times. So, for example, increasingly scheduled through the summer when no BBC <laughs> yeah, or fewer right. BBC That's... people were available and not scheduled another time. Now, you and not on all the year, right? Yeah, you should well, be. Why aren't the, you? Um, the sh- short and easy answer is we are pegged very much to the Sunday morning political programme, which is we share the same editor. And so we're on air when they are. So that's kind of... It's, it's actually most of the year. It's 40 programmes um, approximately. So it's September the 1st, um, through till the end of July. So it's like a school academic yeah. year with two weeks off Christmas, New Year, one week off at Easter. 
and then basically four weeks off in the summer. Um, so yes, I would love to be on all year. But more importantly, Roger, I think I should be half now, like at least feedback was. Oh, well, I wouldn't disagree with that. I'd like to help you if yeah. you needed somebody. I mean, if you needed somebody to sit by you in the studio and do the odd little yeah. thing as well, I'd be there. But well, as, <laughs> as my um, on-screen husband. Yeah, that's, yes. that's right. But there's another thing I want to raise here, which is, uh, and I, you know, I don't know, I'm one of these people who, when the BBC is attacked, I want to defend them, and when they're defending themselves, I want to attack them. But I sometimes think we should take a little broader look and say, look at Channel Four, for example, uh, public service broadcaster, allegedly still. Um, got rid of Right to Reply. I know I was presenting at the time. Which you used to present. Yeah, I used to tw- love that show. About 20 years ago. And I thought... You had a great presenter. Oh, well, you're kind. But what was concerning <laughs> me about that was the basically, basically the deal with Channel 4 when it was set up by Jeremy Isaacs is we'll do more opinionated programming. You know, we'll reflect a wider range of opinion, perhaps, and so on. But the deal is that we'll have a special relationship with the audience. We'll do a program called Right to Reply and they can challenge the program makers. And I think that was crucial to the DNA of of Channel 4. Now, that's gone. So for the past 20 years, roughly, the other big broadcast hasn't had a programme like Feedback, hasn't had a programme yet yours. No one has. I know. The thing I always say when people kind of moan about Newswatch and, you know, you don't have any teeth is, well, you know, we exist. And you look at what we put on air and, um, you know, there is no equivalent. I remember actually briefly in the late 2000s, Channel 4 did launch a, a replacement for Right to Reply. Um, it had a studio audience. Yeah. It lasted a few weeks and then they gave up on it. But it was a monthly programme, I think. that was Which you can't do. To you look can't at, do it in a monthly programme. No, and it was trying to look at, you know, broadcasting more broadly yeah. at all the channels. Uh, but, you know, you look at all the cultural issues that are going on at ITV, you know, Philip Schofield, mm. um, but many other things too. There's um, another story that's broken recently. Oh, well, well, it's historic in some ways, but the X Factor, that... That contestant yes, who was the raped allegation of abuse there, yeah, yeah, and and the way that she she says that there was a complete failure of duty of care. So you know there are there are the same issues affecting every broadcaster, and I think it's wrong that there isn't more scrutiny. And ideally, all these channels should have a program of their own. But I would say, just going back to your point about scheduling, not only should Newswatch be half an hour. And Fran Unsworth, the previous head of news gathering, did at one stage say to me that she did want mm. a half hour program. And my then editor John Neal put in a proper pitch. You know, it's nothing's happened, but you know, I still remain like Pollyanna, hopeful that one day people will realise that half an hour is better because we could do more positive news about the BBC. But the other issue is they've scheduled us at eleven thirty at night now, which is on a Friday night. Oh, peak viewing, which, peak viewing. Peak viewing. Although, I mean, to be fair, as my yeah. employment tribunal also revealed, um, the, the main audience has always been the breakfast news um, outlet, 7.45 Saturday mornings on BBC One, where we get 1.7 million viewers. Um, Can I borrow some which is for important. this podcast? Do you think it was... No, no, right, OK. Now, I'll tell you another couple of hobby horses I want to pursue with well, you. Can I just mention one yeah. thing before you do, which is people forget the, mo- the reason Newswatch was created, which um, it was after the Hutton inquiry and the whole yeah. scandal over the kind of Gilgan reporting of the allegedly sexed up dossiers. And the idea was that the BBC would create a programme that would hold... Let audiences get more of an understanding and would do genuine transparency. So, you know, it was a chance to ask editors about decisions. And if you explain your decision, it's not that the public have to agree with it. It's about the... It's about... Being showing that you're no, well, willing to No, well, I agree absolutely listen. with that. And I always just say to people, you know, uh, yeah. most decisions are 55, 45, 51, 40. Now, just explain why you're taking your decision. Acknowledge that other people have got a different yeah. point of view, but this is why we did it and whatever. And also, if you're wrong, very simple, you say immediately. And then I've got to fill the next three or four minutes with asking you about something else because you've told me you had made yeah. the mistake. They still don't get it. But I tell you that there's a fundamental yeah. problem with the BBC, which I find, which is there are key people in it who are passionately committed to public service and understand accountability. But that 
that's not general. It tends to be, in my view, on programme makers and so on. But in the BBC, particularly the press office, are so defensive now, so concerned that actually that fundamental need to say it's part of the deal with the public. You pay the licence fee, you have no choice about that. Part of the deal is you're a shareholder, you can ask us questions. And I begged, not begged, that's too much. I did ask in Controls of Radio 4 before and now, will you please just at the beginning of each season of feedback put out a statement saying the default position is that I expect people to appear on feedback unless there are really good reasons not to. So the the idea is there's an obligation. And unless the DG does that, unless that's rammed home throughout news and elsewhere, you appear unless there are genuine legal or other problems. We won't get anywhere. And what you will get is the press office saying it's not appropriate or here's a statement. And by heaven, those statements are dreadful usually. No, no, I totally agree. I mean, we have tried... When I first took over Newswatch, we actually arranged a little roadshow in in, um, Broadcasting House where we actually invited all the senior programme producers and editors of all the news and political and current affairs programs and we did a little presentation they got to meet me you know my producer and my editor talked about how the program wasn't it's not about attacking the BBC it's about us doing our public service duty and actually you know as we you and I've just been discussing the BBC explaining how it makes decisions and I have to say there are some managers who come on regularly people will know because they're the same faces again and again Um, but they are relatively senior in news management and they do engage and you may not agree with their answers but I really respect them for coming on and taking on the questions. Yeah, and taking on you, which I increasingly understand is a really tough gig. Now, I will ask you a couple of other questions, if I may. <laughs> well, I'm having a oh, good well, time. So am I. I really am. Um, <laughs> but a couple of things I want to ask you is you were, you know, you were famously involved in, in a quite a big spat with the BBC a, a few years ago about equal pay and whatever. It wasn't a spat. It was an employment tribunal. I brought a legal case. I had to sue the BBC. Right. I entirely accept your interpretation of oh. my word, the spat. Thank you. I just wanted to ask you this, though. Do you think that's a settled issue now? Do you think that the, 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 the basically the problem, for whatever reason it occurred, and it was a disgrace that it did, is now resolved? Do you have confidence that it's resolved? No. Why not? My case was resolved. But no, you look at how many women um, have been bringing sex discrimination tribunals since. They just settled with that Northern Irish presenter on the, you know, on the first day of her tribunal, uh, Donna Trainer. It's still going on, Roger. And pay? What about pay? Are you happy that at least that's been dealt with? Not broadly across the BBC, no. 700 women got pay rises as a direct result of my tribunal, which is something. But I know just how many women are engaged in ongoing battles for, for equal pay and fair treatment. I'm sorry, it's not over. And is this a catching up process? Do you think that actually no. it's a rectifying problems from the past or, or it's an no. ongoing problem? It's ongoing. That's very depressing. And I'll tell you what I don't understand is... It, yeah, in recent, tell me about in it. In recent Roger. years, yeah, <laughs> mind you... Yeah, OK, won't go any further into that one. Um, <laughs> but what's depressing to me is you have had a number of really good senior women running places like News, Helen Bowden, and you had Fran, of course, whatever. You've had controllers of Radio 4 or women. You have a women in a whole range of key jobs in the BBC where you would have thought they were in a position to once and for all deal with this. Uh, and you're saying it's an ongoing problem. Yeah. So why? Why? You know, it's not for me to give the explanation. You just, I can tell you the fact. There's one thing I'd like to add about my employment tribunal, which is really important, which is when I was gathering my evidence independently, going for it, you were one of the men I approached about your salary on feedback because I needed to make uh, comparisons and show male comparators. And 
although it took several months before you responded, as did Jeremy Vine, you and Jeremy both got back to me. And I just wanted to say thank you and put it out there, as I always do, that equal pay is about men and women as allies. And you were an ally to me, Roger. So thank you. Thank you. I explained the reason for the delay was there was a tendering process going on. I was not allowed by the BBC to say that in case it gave an advantage to another person tendering. But I'm delighted to have done it. I was delighted, by the way, to replace you twice on News Watch a long time ago and get paid exactly the same sum as you did, which, in my view, is not half enough. Thank you. Right. Now, move on to another query quickly, sorry if I may, as well. It's about the future of arts programming and so on and the emphasis giving, given to it. And I've got some good news. Yeah. Yeah, front rows radars are amazing. Um, as you, um, you mean they've gone you, up? Yeah, yeah, they've gone up. Um, I think our audience has grown eighteen percent um, over the, the first. I mean, the, it's we've on, we're on a three year contract at the moment. The program's got up to forty two minutes, and uh, the audiences have been growing from the beginning of that period, which is coming up to two years ago. But I was concerned not so much with the appetite, which I've not doubted, but is actually the commitment of the BBC. And there are some people uh, who believe, and I, I don't know if I'm one of them, is that the BBC has been so concentrating on its business future and perhaps preparing for a future without the licence fee and, and so on, is at the top, there, there isn't really an advocate for those elements of public service, uh, the arts, um, I would say religion, science, whatever, who can stand back and say, OK, what's missing? What's missing? Not what other people are doing, not what we need to compete with, not what will make us money, but actually, hold on, in the waterfront, we're not doing stuff about this, about that. I suppose what I'm saying is, more generally, is there's an absence of debate about what public service broadcasting, if we call it broadcasting, still on media, should be doing from now on in, further forward. And that that's an argument that's rather missing. We have an argument about the licence fee. We have an argument about the survival of the BBC. What we don't particularly have an argument about is what can what is public service broadcast when it comes, for example, to do with the arts. Do you think we we need to have that conversation again, or do you think it's already taking place? People who make the programmes, as I think you implied earlier, and I agree, are the ones who really take public service seriously and make programs the best they can. I look at how low the salaries are for many producers who are quite senior and I look at the jobs that have been created for management being brought in from outside from places like Primark and I question where where the real passion for public service broadcasting is and it doesn't seem to be um, anywhere except among program makers of whom of course there are fewer and fewer as jobs have been cut so that's my concern. And so many of them on short-term yeah. contracts. I don't know anybody in radio, anybody makes a, a career. They mm. don't really. I mean, it's nigh and impossible. And I think generally the employment conditions young people face and casualisation is back to the Victorian period. I mean, it's just extraordinary. You raise the issue of, you know, the, the debate. I mean, I think a lot of the debate is being carried out by people who have nothing to do with broadcasting and newspapers and, you know, um, sort of think tankers and political figures. But, they, you know, I don't know what the solution is other than People like me just try to make the best programmes we can. We don't waste money. Um, you know, we care passionately about our audiences and we try and serve them. And I, I'm surrounded by colleagues who do that. And that's what makes me proud to work for the BBC. And I, I just wish I could see that being reflected in the decisions that are made about our future. And you've got to have a playing field to play on. And that's the, I've, no, I've no doubt how well you'll play, but you've got to have the field. And I just, and I think about Channel 4 too. You know, there's, there was a lot of conversation about privatisation, Channel 4, a lot of conversation about moving bits out to Leeds, which I think is a very good thing that's happening. But I don't know, 
that I've heard from Channel 4 either, a real articulation about what public service broadcasting is in the future and what Channel 4's role in it. It seems to me this need for that debate, we're not getting it from the BBC, we're not getting it from Channel 4, we're not getting it from Parliament either. No, no, it's a real concern. I noticed Florella Benjamin has just left the Lords Media Committee and, you know, real broadcaster and a real long-term commitment to public service broadcasting and young people's broadcasting in particular. And I, yeah, I just... I mean, there is a lot of expertise out there among people who've, who've left broadcasting or, um, you know, have taken a step back from senior roles in have held in the past. So I don't know. It's all above my pay grade, Roger. That's the trouble. Well, now. <laughs> all these ideas. Uh, yeah, maybe, maybe not. Finally, I would ask you, where do you get your self-confidence from? I mean, you were born into the purple, you know, private school, Oxford, uh, uh, City University, BBC trainee, whatever. But you have a, a lot of people who have been ground down by now uh, with the sort of issues you've had to deal with and the problems you've faced. But, I mean, you just, well, it's evident today from our conversation. You haven't lost any energy for these causes, have you? Where's it come from? Um, well, like a lot of children of immigrants, I was told you'll always have to be better than mediocre people who will be promoted automatically through nepotism and cronyism. And I always have done my best just to be judged of my own ability. And where I have genuinely been, I've always made progress. Um, I've, I've only ever asked for equal opportunity. And I'm very aware of the privileges I had because my... My father, who arrived as a penniless immigrant, made the money to send me to private school. I worked hard. I, I earned my place at Oxford. Um, you know, I won my place on the BBC News trainee scheme. And um, I think it's my responsibility as well to do my best, not just to represent other women and women of colour and people of South Asian heritage, um, but also to try and make things better for others. So I'm very conscious for guest booking, for example, the stories we cover on Front Row, of making sure we are covering all the things we should be and not just the same old, dare I say it, more famous or privileged voices. So it's, you know, it's part of what a lot of us do. We want to make Britain a better place and it's a small part of doing it is to make sure that the BBC represents everyone it should. And I have great support from some wonderful colleagues as well to do so. So you just got to keep going on. And also, dare I say, as a woman and as a woman of colour and as a woman of colour now entering her, I'm trying to think how many years, I joined the BBC originally, started my career in 1990. You know, you, you don't give up. If we gave up, we would never have got anywhere. Roger, it never ends. Oh, don't give up. This elderly white man has really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you very much indeed. But I'm not going to give up either. Samira Ahmed, thank you. Thank you, Roger. And that's it for this week and indeed for this series. We're going to take a break over the summer and return in September when we'll be talking to the former BBC Director General Mark Thompson, who was also a successful Chief Executive of the New York Times. Since our first podcast last September, we've published 43 episodes, sometimes in rapid response to a crisis that the BBC has had to face, from the Lineker tweet, Richard Sharp's untenable position as chair of the corporation, to the Hugh Edwards controversy, offering, we hope, considered and reasoned analysis from some of the top broadcasters and players in public service broadcasting. And we've also tried to keep a watchful eye on the broadcasting regulator Ofcom, and its guardianship of impartiality. Over the past year, we've also offered a peek behind the scenes with Peter Taylor, Simon McCoy, Ernie Ray, Nick Jones and Joan Bakewell, to name but a few. Another former DG, Tony Hall, Andrew Neal, Baroness Tina Stowe, Paul Hughes, Paul Mason and Charles Moore are amongst those who've given their insights on all the key issues that public service broadcasters have faced. Impartiality, accountability 
and cuts to their services. We hope we've played a role in helping inform the debate on what we want from public service broadcasters. We are passionate about that and are critical friends of the BBC, so this podcast has been a labour of love. We want to thank Dave Kitto for his technical expertise and support and PR consultant Cathal Morrow from Quingenti, who's played a blinder. We couldn't recommend a PR consultant more highly. Yes, we would like you to support this podcast for £1.99 per month, but if you'd rather not sign up on a monthly basis, we have a crowdfunding option in the description of this programme where you can make a one-off payment for as much or as little as you want. We hope that the last 43 episodes have been worthy of your attention and that you'd like to continue hearing more from us, so please do contribute what you can. The great Carol King once wrote and recorded a song called It Might As Well Rain Until September. In the light of what is happening in the Mediterranean, I hope that happens there, uh, but not in Devon, where I am off to. From me, Roger Bolton, and my producer, Kate Dixon, of Good Egg Productions, goodbye and have a great August.